The hackers are getting smarter and finding other ways to get in, like through the build server. That's a huge area where the CISO must be responsible. They must see that build environment as important as their digital, financial, and client information. I'm happy to welcome Deb Radcliffe back on the show. She's a repeat guest because her superpower is so critical, cybersecurity journalism. The cyber industry is fast moving and yet not caught up yet by some measures. Deb was the first person to recognize cybersecurity as a reporting beat in the mid-90s, but her thirst for knowledge and drive to inform continues. She still writes articles and does research. In fact, part one of her hacker trilogy, Breaking Backbones, is on Amazon. We talked about that, the after effects of the Solowinds breach, and a story she wrote on 10 pioneering women in cybersecurity. Let's get started. Deb, welcome back to the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Thank you, Davida. It's nice to be here talking with you again, my old pal from cybersecurity back in the 1990s. (laughs) First order of business, Breaking Backbones. Part one of a hacker trilogy is on Amazon. Well done. I love how you use your experiences to frame the book. CISOs are under the gun as the war inside. Globecom escalates and bad guys want to take out their competition. Thank you. And thanks for reading it, Davida. I've had a lot of good comments on it. Uh, some people have said that my style's like Lee Childs. He's the guy who wrote the Jack Reacher series. And I find it interesting because I'm a female writing a thriller and it doesn't feel like a female wrote it. It feels like someone non-gender wrote it, like both genders are well represented and the action sequences are very strong. Well, bravo to you to find a neutral voice. I think that'll attract everybody. And you might have a feeling of relief, but now to book two. Can you tell us a little bit about what we'll see next? Yes, book two is mostly written. I'm editing it now. And the hackers who successfully took down Globecom in book number one are now still trying to get the last bad guy, Damien, who took over Globecom for criminal gain in book number one. And he managed to escape the aftermath where most of the board members were arrested or some of them killed each other off in book one at the very end. The problem is, is Damien is also after them and the young generation doesn't get that. Uh, So they get swept up in this while the older generation is sort of stepping out of the picture. So it's a little bit of a Terminator theme where the first one is after the woman and then the second one is after her son. It's sort of similar to that. And so I'm not going to tell you how it ends or whether or not they get the bad guy or whether the bad guy gets them, but it's setting up for one final installment in book number three. Look forward to it. Best of luck. So, you know, you say something like, well, do the bad guys win? Do the good guys win? You know, things, how things have changed from the time you were starting to write the book or even starting for cyber, or have they? You know, 20 years ago, back in the early 2000s, you asked Microsoft, how can I be sure your patched update's secure? What if I get hacked? And uh, I bet they didn't like that too much. So I'm not sure how much more advanced we are now and who's winning this game, but it's all about the supply chain. Uh, But talk about that time 20 some years ago and and how that all started and then talk a little bit about the vulnerable point in cyber, which is supply chain. 
Well, the fun part of being a non-technical person who's doing cybersecurity and cybercrime journalism back in the late 90s and early 2000s was I would ask some pretty obvious questions. One time I was at Cisco and I asked why they can't change IP, Internet Protocol, which is too trusting and which is most of the reason we have all these problems. That was one of many times I've been laughed out of the room. Look, we're at IPv6 now. Now take us back a couple years later and I'm in a big press meeting and Microsoft is there and they're answering questions. So I raised my hand in the audience and I said, how can I be sure something malicious does not download to my computer through my Microsoft patch updates. Another time I got laughed out of the room. Um, they said there was absolutely no way that could happen. There's no way to conduct a man in the middle attack between my browser and their update location. They never even considered that Microsoft itself would be hacked and someone would get into their build servers and download a malicious update. However, that just happened with SolarWinds Orion, and there's been a couple of other patch update processes that have been similarly infected. So the sad part is things are worse than they were back in the beginning, and back in the beginning, they were accusing me of hyperbole. So the supply chain now is totally not trustworthy. If they can get into Orion's, cross over their entire network, get to the build server, install something on the build server right before it gets sent out to all their clients and then sit there quietly and not do anything while the clients are testing to make sure the server patch is safe to use. And then it waits two weeks after installation to actually turn on its little program, so small, you know, so unobservable and go out and using DNS exploits to try to start pulling in more malware, growing itself on the enterprise and start performing its functions, setting up the command and control channel. I mean, it's unbelievable that people took this much time to make this extended of an attack work, but they did. And now it's packaged and it's reusable. Mm, that's scary. Do you think that the efforts from the government to have vendors disclose breaches, for example, are we just dancing around the problem here, is that even going to help? The cyber threats are much more purposeful. They're more careful. They're more, they're more penetrating. And they're way more planned out every step of the attack. And these are long attacks that start at one point and go through several other points and then go on to a patch download and then do the same thing to all the companies it downloads. I actually do think that the uh, U.S. government's breach disclosure for government systems to make vendors disclose their breaches in their own software ecosystem is a help. I think it's actually the right direction. We are not seeing enough of this. Most uh, panels I've been on, you hear the speakers who are CISOs and stuff saying, well, you need to check all your code. Well, I'm sorry, one of my clients is Grammatech and they do binary and um, static analysis. And there's no way it would have caught the Orion patch malware because it was inert. It was not showing itself during a binary analysis scan. It has to do something to show itself and it was smart. It didn't do anything until two weeks after installation. So I do think that it would help to know the vulnerabilities in the vendor code. I think that um, those can be detected, but when there's something malicious in the vendor code that's purposely installed to hide itself from testing programs, 
that's not going to solve the problem, but it is a good start. There's no way that an enterprise can check all their APIs, all their open source, all their commercial software, everything they have running in their environments. And a lot of the commercial software, you know, uses these open source code components. They need to be able to continually scan their own code and put along with it what's just finally becoming real is a software bill of materials. Alan Friedman out of the Department of Commerce talked to me about this a couple of weeks ago and I published the article. He's really into this. And what it is, is the vendors not only go and scan their own code and all the components that are used in their code, and then they provide a list of these are the things that are wrong with this code. They're not gonna fix every problem, I guess, because it's too much for them. But when you buy software and you have a, a software bill of materials attached to it, and these things are going to be automated and you're going to be able to cross all your code through these uh, bill of materials and say, we've got these consistent problems here we can live with. We've got these other consistent vulnerabilities we're going to have to patch. This applies to our environment. This does not apply to our environment. And so DAST maybe might be working in those environments where you're actually patching the code as it's running might be an opportunity, but no, at least knowing what's vulnerable in your code and having a list to work with, it isn't the final solution, but it feels like the beginning of helping with this problem. You know, as far as solutions go, we all know that the deeper they go, the worse things get. And they're going down to the GitHub level now. The attackers know now that code is where it's at and that we have all these repositories sitting around. And they found first it was an, a test to prove you could do it. And now we're actually seeing it happen where malware is loaded into code that's reused at GitHub. And because it has a name like Microsoft Server Patch, people open it up, they download it, and before they know it, their whole Microsoft environment is infected. Do you see any new roles evolving because of this new digital bill of materials that we need to manage or the fact that there's malware going in code? Oh yeah. Compliance as code is becoming part of a trend as well, because if you think about it, networks are actually code now. So infrastructure is code. You can apply the compliance as code along with it. So this could land in several places. It could land in the DevSecOps realm where the developers are actually leading the charge for more security because IT security pros make everything too complicated for the developers. And IT security pros didn't write the code. They don't know how to test the code, even if they've got all kinds of great products. Really, the message of shift left is turning towards the developers. Maybe there is going to be some kind of compliance development officer or development compliance officer coming out of this, or it could literally shift right over to the compliance departments because they've got all these digital bill of the materials with everything in their organization, they're gonna be ranking which risk that they can live with and the ones they can't live with. And usually that falls to the risk and compliance department. The CISOs would be wise to oversee all of this, but I don't believe they've got the chops to be in charge of it. Do you feel like this ambulance chasing? We're just chasing the... the the bad guys and gals are just driving all of this and we're trying to keep up versus the other way around. 
It's always been that way, Davida. You know that. We've both been in the industry since the 90s. We used to call it whack-a-mole, remember? Same kind of thing, just different. They're just getting so much more sophisticated. It used to be very easy for a hacker to send a phish email that had all kinds of misspellings in it. And before you knew it, they owned the enterprise. People are smarter. They're not falling for fishes as easily and letting the bad guys in. So the hackers are getting smarter and finding other ways to get in, like through the build server at SolarWinds. And unfortunately, they were not protecting that build environment. That's a huge area where the CISO must be responsible. They must see that build environment as important as their uh, digital, financial, and client information. So we're getting to the point where we don't believe anything anymore because we're so struck by fear that there's going to be somebody that just wants our information, wants us to click on something. We have to check everything and some things are going to be legit and some things aren't. But now we're to the point, I am to the point where everything's bad. I'm just assuming everything's bad first and then go from there. Maybe that's how we have to think. You're an individual human that's actually living the zero trust methodology then. Yeah. You know, don't trust anything. I remember years ago, and you've probably written some of this stuff too, Davida, because I know you're a writer also. I've written stuff in the like early 2000s that if you guys vendors don't get your act together, people aren't going to trust business on the internet. So if if I get a message from Safeway saying we're having a sale, I'm not going to trust that it's actually from Safeway business is going to be lost because of this. I kept predicting that, but I don't see that. People are still massively buying online. I'm buying online more than I ever have, mostly because of COVID. I've got credit information all over the place because I have to use portals now to get paid. And these are things I would never do in the past. And I know the risk now, but I also know that I have to do these things. So it's it's a quandary for the lower level people like us, but imagine being the enterprise. Trust nothing. That zero trust model at the enterprise has to happen at every layer. The browser, the email, their DNS servers, their cloud. Oh my gosh, cloud is huge. You know, everything's in the cloud. Even if you and I lived a perfectly safe life, our data is in the cloud all over the place, depending on who we do business with. Our big businesses are using Amazon to store our data. That's a whole other conversation about the cloud. The cloud vendors are responsible for the cloud and the companies are responsible for their data. And there's a there's a, probably a gap in the shared responsibility model. That's where infrastructure as code really will help because... It helps you solidify a secure code build and automatically go fix any securities across your cloud builds. Like if you find a misconfigured bucket or leaky credentials, you can fix them pretty quickly. You're such a busy lady doing writing, but there is one topic I would love to get into for a few minutes here. And that's an article you published on 10 Pioneering Women in Cybersecurity was in CSO Online. And I know you spent time with a lot of them early in your cybercrime reporting career. It must have been incredibly hard to choose just 10. So I'd love some personal stories, if you have any, any of the the gals you, you spoke with or researched. Just for context, my first article on women in cybersecurity was in 1999 for Network World. And two of those women I revisited, Renee Gutman was one of the people that I actually interviewed for that cover in 1999. So was Rhonda McLean. They were first to be cybersecurity um, CISO level experts who actually helped forge the role. So Rhonda impressed me when I first met her at the very first ever 
EWF, Executive Women's Forum and Security in Scottsdale, Arizona. It was a buzz with energy, a bunch of women hanging out. And Rhonda got up in front of us for the keynote and she looked at all of us at breakfast and said, I just want to tell you that I get funding for every security project I put out there. And the room was really quiet because I couldn't understand how she did that. Everybody saw security as a hassle. No one wanted to pay for any of it back then. And so she told us how she did it. I couch security as a business enabler. Oh, you want that new application? I can enable it with two-factor authentication. You want blah, blah, blah. I can enable it with intrusion detection. It was really lovely to hear someone mix the business and the security story together. That's a strength also that I felt Renee Gutman has and had back then. In the olden days, she didn't even know what a CISO was supposed to do. None of us did. So she went around to her her new company, Time Warner Inc., and she asked her business units, what do you do? Oh, you process thousands of credit cards? Well, I just worked for a bank. Let me set up the security. This was before PCI DSS. So That's exactly how I see a CISO operating. If you're not serving the business, if you don't know what the business does, if you don't know what their primary function is, where their cram jewels are, the value of their data and why, you can't even be a CISO. These women forged the role and they're a woman. And I think that's pretty cool. Another person that profoundly impacted me back then was Becky Bass. She came from the National Security Agency. She was a big Filipina woman with a giant Alabama accent. And I just loved her. She was so unusual and she was a big hugger and she knew so much. They actually called her the den mother of intrusion detection because of all the funding she did while she was at the NSA. She recognized intrusion detection as a tool being developed in the private sector as she was testing products for use for the NSA. This was before intrusion detection was even called intrusion detection. And I remember seeing some of these tools back then and saying to some of these consulting firms, it looks to me like you have a product. Very shortly after this product of intrusion detection came out, Accent Technologies was on a cover of one of my Neil Award winning winning stories called Hackers, Terrorists, and Spies. But even then, when they demoed the tool to me and how it worked, my first question was, and this is why people got nervous interviewing with me. Okay, so I see it got the intrusion detection captured this malicious program as it got in through the email, made its way through a development server, found its way to the central database. Yeah, good job, huh? And I go, how come it didn't stop it before it did all that stuff? Like, why didn't it stop it at the door? Why did it have to wait till the server was infected to catch it? And no one had an answer for me back then. So now it's called intrusion prevention because they supposedly can do that, but everybody's afraid to turn that on because they're afraid they're going to stop good, actual, legitimate business. So we're still where we were then, but this is the kind of stuff that Becky Bass actually helped move forward into the commercial sector through her funding and her awareness of the need for these type of products. Lastly, there was Dorothy Denning. That lady is a powerhouse. I interviewed her for the original story too. She is an academic. She's not hands-on. She has written so many seminal papers around key 
exchange programs and uh, cryptography and all kinds of other uh, documents that we still use today to build products off of. And she started publishing uh, for like her thesis paper in 1983 when no one even had the internet. But she was already thinking back then, what's going to happen the day that I go on my computer, it reaches out to the IRS and I file my taxes. We didn't even have a mechanism for that to happen when she was writing these papers. And they're still used and referred to today. She's uh, retired uh, from the Naval Academy in Monterey, but she's still a professor emeritus there. Oh, and I'm sorry, I forgot to add, Becky passed away about four years ago, and it was heartbreaking to all of us. She was such a great lady. I remember once she drove three hours to attend a birthday party for me at my house and she brought the best food. We were all really hungry too, so that was great. She brought a bunch of um, uh, sushi and we really needed it. Um, But she's just an amazing lady like that. She cares about the people she cares about. And that was the saddest thing for me. We were talking about her coming to visit me in Hawaii four days before she passed. I don't know if she knew she was gonna pass or not. It seemed pretty sudden, but I didn't know those four days earlier. And now I regret that I didn't get to see her that one last time. That's too bad. You know, it's interesting. You always talk about what, what if there's a common theme you might have, you might have seen consciously or subconsciously in these women. Is it grit? Is it just smarts identifying a problem, a business problem, all of the above? Anything else that you noticed among these gals? I think a lot of it was they were all like me, where we didn't even really think about our gender. We just thought about what we wanted to do. I saw the problem of cybercrime being really bad when I started researching that book about Kevin Mitnick in 1995. And I realized that those were dial-up modems. Wait till the internet's directly connected into business and houses. And I went for it. As a journalist, I felt like my job was to prepare the world for what was coming I feel like I didn't make a dent, but maybe I did because, you know, things are so bad now. But Renee and Rhonda, they saw they got jobs uh, that weren't defined. They went forward. They defined them. As far as Dorothy Denning goes, when I talked to her, she said she's like me. She saw these problems ahead of time and she just couldn't not write about them. She just had to do what she had to do. So I think a lot of it for us is. We do what we feel we need to do. We do what we love. We do our best. We have to do better than the guys. We know that. And we have to be able to stand up for ourselves and say, look, this is what we are doing. As I'm shaping my career into more of an analyst role right now, I have to promote myself. I have to say, look, I've I created an analyst program for the Sands Institute. I ran it for 15 years. We developed a lot of topics around a lot of security content. I ran the whole thing. I drove the topics. I'm a smart person. And this is the role I see myself in. That's working for me. I think one thing women have trouble with is doing that. We feel like we're being vain and I recently got called not nice by a person I was trying to work for. It was a male and I was given a role with a very large title and I was told to shut up and write their copy. I lasted two months there and I told that man very nicely it was time to part ways. I won't put up with what I don't want anymore. I'm older now and I can do what I want. When I was younger, 
I just did what I wanted to do. I did what I saw needed to be done. I learned and I did my best and I got a lot of respect for that in from the males in the industry. Do you think that the industry is uh, making an effort to, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion? Is that is that moving forward in cyber enough? I think it's moving forward in cyber in some ways more than other industries. As a woman in this industry all these years and the acceptance I've received And yes, I've had to deal with the occasional flirt. I just put them in their place, especially if they're married. Very, very good at shaming people like that. And I move on with my business. Really, I felt nothing but respect and nurturing from men in the industry. I've had CEOs and CSOs take me under their wing and help me grow as a human, as a business person. And I think that out of all the industries, if you are a woman of grit, if you are a woman of power, if you are accurate and you do your job well, you actually get a lot of respect here. And now on LinkedIn, I'm seeing a lot more diversity around mental health, like, you know, hire an autistic, he'll be a great programmer, right? And um, I've seen that actually, a old friend of mine who ran a company, he had a highly autistic individual. He told me that that guy did the work of three people and he helped him manage his life. He made sure he lived in a one bedroom space because that did, made him less nervous. And he made sure that where the guy picked up his coffee knew that he only liked this flavor. And he made sure the guy's money was safe because he didn't really spend money. So he made sure it was all well invested and helped him with that because he made a lot of money, but he didn't spend it. So I think that there's room for all kinds of people in our industry. And I think our industry truly is more accepting than other industries. I think I read an article in SC Magazine not too long ago about celebrating differences like that. And it's not just females, it's not just race, but it's also people's fabric and celebrating that and hiring to their strengths. Because as you mentioned, someone, an autistic person is brilliant and has a role and can be very helpful. And people overlook that part of DE&I. They look at the, what's tangible. I would like to see more people in the, of color in this industry. I'm seeing more and more, and I'm seeing more females of color too. But it's that, that number right there seems a little out of skew to me. Good conversation today, Deb Radcliffe. And I wish you all the best in Breaking Backbones number one and getting that out into the market and getting into people's hands. And then as you write the second part of the trilogy. Thank you, Davida. Book One Focus is about human chip implants and Globecom uses them to take over the world. And the CISOs that are protecting Globecom end up in the middle of the battle when the power play happens. I think it'll really help a lot of CISOs see their jobs in a more exciting light and also the relevance of how important they are to the backbone of their own networks is uh, very well shown here. It's all fiction and it's all action oriented and it's meant for a general audience as well as a technical audience. So I crack up because my technical readers are fine with everything I do, but I have a couple that want it to be a total geek book. And I said, I'll lose half my audience if I do that. So everything I wrote in there is technically true. I didn't go too far out into the future with technology, even though the book takes place somewhat in the future. Well, all the best, Deb. Thank you. Our thanks to Deb Radcliffe for joining us on the Look Left at Marketing podcast. For more information on her services, visit her website at debradcliffe.com. And of course, if you'd like to get a copy of her cyber thriller, Breaking Backbones, just out, be sure to head over to Amazon today. 
We hope you'll subscribe to the Look Left at Marketing series, which can be found on Amazon, as well as Apple, Google, Spotify, and all the major platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, we welcome your comments and feedback, suggestions for future episodes. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Till next time, be well.